You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Vore, and I'm one of your hosts. I am not joined today by my wonderful co-host, Dr. Holly Oxhandler. She is doing some traveling this week, so we couldn't hop on for an intro. I am joined by a 10-month-old baby girl, so we'll see if she chimes in, has anything to say. But just wanted to hop on real quick and set this up. This week is our conversation with Eric Minton about his new book, It's Not You, It's Everything, What Our Pain Reveals About the Anxious Pursuit of the Good Life. Eric is a pastor and a psychotherapist and obviously an author and uh, taking kind of a systems approach to things like anxiety and depression and uh, really diving into the idea of what if what if our pain, what if all of those types of things are telling us something about the world that we live in, the society we live in, as opposed to being purely individual problems of some kind. So enjoy our conversation with Eric Minton. Hey, today we are so excited to be joined by Eric Minton. He is a writer, ordained Baptist minister, and psychotherapist specializing in marriage and family therapy. He has a family therapy practice in Knoxville, Tennessee, and provides coaching and consultation for pastors, nonprofit leaders, business people, and institutions, helping them foster better ways of living, working, and serving together. Minton's work has appeared in Sojourners, G's Magazine, Baptist News Global, and Red Letter Christians, and he's the author of the new book that we're going to talk about some today, It's Not You, It's Everything, What Our Pain Reveals About the Anxious Pursuit of the Good Life that comes out on May 10th. Eric, thanks for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Robert. Yeah, of course. Is there anything else that our audience should know about you besides that bio there? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, <laughs> it, always, it always gives uh, people a little pause. I feel like, yeah, you know, right, right. Uh, yeah, so I try to pretend to be above sports. I really do. I feel like it's really high minded to not care too much about sports. But uh, I sadly, I am a lifelong uh, Tennessee basketball fan. Which is, I mean, there's about, I mean, there's, it's, we've grown in population size over the years with our success, but. Mm-hmm. We started mm-hmm. out as a small but mighty group of people watching like five and 24 teams uh, lose routinely by 50 and 60 points to Kentucky every year in the 90s. <laughs> and so uh, every year having this great kind of ballooning pride and then pretending not to care. Uh, and then, yeah. you know, I was, I was great at that as a teenager also. But then having that sort of deflated immediately during March Madness is just, right. uh, it's just the worst. So I'm trying to pretend to be cool mm. and be like, oh, it's not a big deal at all. But uh, sadly, yeah. I'm actually sad about my basketball team losing in uh, the NCAA tournament. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's, and it feels wrong to say that out loud because you're like, oh, we're in the midst of, again, an on-again, off-again global pandemic. And there's the Russian invasion of Ukraine and just the sadness that sort of surrounding all of us. And yet here I am just feeling this crippling defeat about a college basketball <laughs> game. Uh, but yeah. yeah, that's where we are. Yeah. Well, we're actually, we're recording this. Well, this will come out in a couple of weeks, but we're recording this the morning after Auburn basketball lost last night in the NCAA tournament. So I understand. I feel your pain. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Solidarity yeah. for SEC teams that are just constantly defeating in March. So, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> and to be fair, Holly, uh, Baylor's men's team lost as well. So mm. there you go. We're all, well, yes, we'll just uh, commiserate here. That's awesome. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, so this this book, right, comes out May 10th. It's not you. It's everything. What our pain reveals about the anxious pursuit of the good life. I have to say, I uh, this actually the first time ever, and I texted Holly this, uh, it's the first time that I've yep. ever seen a book and thought, I want to read that. That looks interesting. Mm-hmm. I'm going to ask the publisher if we can have it because normally we mm. get, ver- you know, different things. They send us things or whatever. Uh, it's the first time I've ever intentionally sought out a copy because it looked so interesting. And even just the title, I thought, that's I love that title. I'm into it already. So uh, mm. super excited. Can you tell us a little bit of the the backstory behind this? Like what, what led you to write a book like this? Yeah. Well, my wife will be just uh, relieved that you love the title. For a long time, uh, I wanted, I had so many other names for the book and the publisher kept telling me, these are terrible. And so, <laughs> so uh, like what? Uh, can, can you give us one or two? Yeah. Oh gosh. I think, oh, it's, it's been so long now. I don't even remember. Uh, but <laughs> they were all about mm-hmm. this like kind of practice of okayness. And so I think mm. one of the first ones that I pitched was what if we were okay? And mm. they kept telling me, Eric, this is like your tone policing the universe. <laughs> so I was like, oh yeah, yeah no, I can see that. So then I was just trapped in this interminable space where I could not think of a title. And I thought like, how, t- I've never written a book before. And so I, I had this experience where I was thinking, how terrible is this that I have this book, but I don't know what the hell to call it. And then I remember sitting at my kitchen table, just kind of bantering back and forth with my wife. And she's uh, always uh, much smarter and more concise than I am. And she said, what if you took the like standard breakup line? Like, it's not you, it's me, but like about everything. And I was like, oh my word, that is brilliant. Mm, um, so, yeah. so yeah, so it, this is really uh, all credit to, to Lindsay Renfrew. Uh, she, <laughs> she cooked this one up for us. So, um, but to answer your question uh, more straightforwardly, yeah, this, this book, uh, they uh, broadly approached me in several Gosh, it's probably been two years now. I don't even remember. Right as the pandemic was beginning, and um, my the the editor there, Valerie, she just shot me a quick email and said, "Hey, I read some of your stuff on the mm-hmm. internet, and do you like? Have you ever considered writing a book?" And I thought, "Yes, but no one would, would probably want to read it." And so I, you know, I had not considered really writing this thing. And so then, as uh, we went along, and for a long time before this point. Uh, there is a psychologist that he taught at Vanderbilt for many years. His name is Bruce Rogers Vaughn. He has a private practice in Nashville, and I think he's a genius. And so he wrote this book several years before mine, like I think in 2018, I might be misremembering it, called Caring for Souls in a Neoliberal Age. And, and it's about how do we provide adequate psychotherapy, uh, social work, pastoral care, for people living in late capitalism, because his argument is that it is a unique mm. time filled with unique complexities that we're not really fully appreciating unless we treat capitalism as an actual thing that we are existing underneath. Huh. And for yeah. myself as a therapist, I thought, gosh, I had never thought about that before. And so then that changed kind of the whole scope of the work that I was doing. At this time, I was working in an underfunded high school in Knoxville where I was on campus at the school providing psychotherapy and family therapy for students in school while they were there and then bringing their families in during the school day 
and doing psychotherapy work there because they had transportation issues or they were families uh, that were insufficiently housed or sometimes um, had income struggles and were had a lot of things working against them coming into traditional outpatient mental health services. And so I was a school-based therapist for a while. And I kept thinking about how most of the students were rightfully angry and sad and anxious. And everyone wanted me to just talk them out of it all the time and send them right back to class. And I kept thinking, they're right. They, they, they should be, actually. Uh, and so then when I, I, I was introduced to Bruce's work, one of his first articles was Depression as Political Resistance. And hmm. that I, I never mm-hmm. thought of that before. And he was saying, actually, in a situation where unyielding awesomeness is required of all of us all of the time, what if your depression was actually telling you the truth about the reality of living in this kind of world? And what if it's actually this kind of like visceral, physical lament that your body is enacting on your behalf in an effort to try to save your life? Oh my and I thought, gosh. my word. Yeah. And so, so when Bruce is talking about this in his work, and then I'm seeing that layered on top of students who are constantly diagnosed with mental health conditions because uh, health insurance companies need us to do that for them. And then the whole time they're telling me, is it still depression, Eric? if my dad makes less an hour than I do at the fast food job we share. And I, to to this day, I'm still thinking to myself, why am I diagnosing this student instead of diagnosing a culture that asks her to ask these kinds of questions all the time? Yeah. Yeah. And so for me, like that is the seedbed for what if that's happening to all of us all of the time where we're kind of constantly given this individual responsibility for bearing the symptoms of an out-of-control society and then blamed yeah. for not being better at doing it. Yeah. And then as, as therapists, what if we're enabling that system by just participating in the diagnosis of individual people with individual problems that are actually just experiencing the symptoms of a society that constantly prizes their radical not-okayness, like their pain, and their dysregulation and their disconnection. Our society has monetized that to the point where living in it is a form of just constant competition and scarcity. And then the idea that people would at some point not be okay with that. And then we would tell them, oh, there's something wrong with you. (laughs) For me, that's the whole theme of the book. Like, what if it isn't you? Like, what if it's everything that's driving all of this? Does that make sense? Yes. No, it absolutely makes sense. In fact, like there's so many things that I want to like, like so many directions that I want to go in with this, but um, I'm going to, I'm going to just not um, (laughs) for the sake of time. But I will say as a social worker, I really appreciate the ways in which you are able to name and articulate and really point to systems that are unhealthy and that are contributing to individuals, I guess, like, it's just just the overwhelm and the the fact that individuals are coping to the best of their ability, but when they are, you know, breathing and swimming within a system that, um, and I know you love the idea of swimming, by the way, I did pick up on that in the book. I'm just playing. I, I just, I just really, really appreciate how you're, you're able to name and articulate and unpack that, um, that, you know, there are just ways that these systems are really hurting us. And then we try to treat individuals, but it's not going to work if the systems are still so sick. So 
And there's lots of them. Like capitalism is a great one that you elevated, but um, but I know that there are so many others too that are affecting a lot of individuals in unique ways um, based on their layers of diversity and intersectionality. And so anyways, I just really appreciate everything that you have just said. It's good. Well, thanks. I love yeah. hearing that people appreciate and agree with me. I'm passionate. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, as a social worker, like I said, it's just, you're just speaking, you know, our language and our discipline. And so it's, it's so good. I do um, want to elevate that, like, you know, early in this book that you have this note around um, how the pain is trying to tell us something. And you are just kind of alluding to that a moment ago, like with the example of, you know, your student or, you know, I know that there are other examples that you provide. Can you, can you unpack that a little bit more around the pain trying to tell us something and why that statement is worth writing basically the entire book around? Yeah. Uh, you know, typically when, at least in my job and, and you all might, might find this as people who uh, practice and, and regularly talk about mental health care in America, uh, but I live in the Southeast. And so uh, the question when I went to graduate school in Southern California, out in California was never, do you see a therapist? It's, oh, who do you go to for therapy? And if you ask somebody in California, where do you go to church? They would look at you with a confused stare and think, what the hell are you talking about? I don't go to church. And if you invert those, that's how it is in the South. It's not, do you, do you go to church? It's, where do you go to church? And if you ask somebody, oh, oh who do you see for psychotherapy? People just stare at you blankly. Uh, and so for me, one of the things that I found in, in growing up in this kind of culture is that when there is, you know, something we call anxiety and depression, and again, both of you all know this more so than I probably, but when those things happen, they, they get stigmatized to the point that like everyone thinks we know already what we're talking about. So people will come in and say like, oh, Eric, well, you know, like, I, I have to, I have depression. And I would say, okay, yeah, sure. And Dr. Google has usually done most of the heavy lifting before they come in. And so they've, they've looked online oh and yeah. kind of worked through some of the different diagnoses uh, that they're probably carrying. And I've even had uh, previous experiences where uh, young folks, like, you know, 14, 13 years old, are coming in with just a five, six dot list of diagnoses that have, they've carried mm -hmm. with them over the past several years of treatment and talking to me about all yeah. the complexities mm. of each one. And I'm thinking, oh, wow, this is very interesting. I remember asking one of them, do you find this helpful for you? And their response still to this day is my favorite. And they were some, along with something along the lines of like, well, no, shit, I thought you were a therapist. I thought you cared about it. Uh, and so for me, that kind of response is, is really interesting. So people come in expecting that if they use the kind of language of therapy, that somehow that will be kind of helpful for us. And already they've sort of taken this balcony approach to their own experience in the world of the person by yeah. labeling it this thing that came from culture or health insurance companies or the DSM or other therapists mm. or all these sorts of things. When in fact, when I get into the work with people and I find out what they're surviving or what they're doing at work or what they're experiencing at home or what they grew up with, I find really quickly that, gosh, depression and anxiety don't really cut it because depression and anxiety are experiences with, um, and again, there are complicated reasons for why people are experiencing these things. And I'm not trying to discount the impact of brain research and all of the biological complexities that come with being a person on earth. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think we're finding out that depression and anxiety are diseases of low heritability. 
which means like your environmental impact is pretty high when you're experiencing anxiety and depression. And so if we can look at them from that perspective, rather than this kind of disease centric model, what I find is that people will then start talking to me about these things and I'll, they'll describe their experiences on earth. And I'll find myself leaning in and thinking like, well, and hearing all of this, if you told me you're doing this at work, you're working this many hours, you're not able to pay the rent or you're, uh, are struggling to navigate life with this complicated family arrangement, or you're really, really just, you've been sick a lot, or we're living in a global pandemic, or World War Three seems like on the precipice, and you got to the end of that sentence, and you told me, and I'm doing great here, like I've never felt better. That's when I call mobile crisis and send a van to come pick you up. Hmm. Like, when uh, we as people are constantly taught that we need to brand our suffering in some sort of alternative way, or we need to turn it into a disease. That's some sort of like thing that just is endemic to us as a person that we can't really control it. Then instead, I, I'd like us to just like connect the pain to the actual experience that we're having as people on earth and help us to notice that like, oh yeah, no, no, no. It's trying to get your attention that what you're experiencing right now as a person is inhumane. That when depression mm-hmm. and anxiety show up, usually anxiety when it doesn't have, like it's really helpful to be anxious. Like, you know, if, and that's the thing I think is what gets lost in these conversations is if you're in the middle of a street and there's a trash truck coming towards you and you don't get anxious about that, you die. So anxiety, gosh, it's a really helpful part of being a person. And yeah. so when it rises to the point at which it, it's unsustainable because it's trying to control things that are out of your control, then gosh, I really love depression's efforts at trying to bring you back down and trying to decrease your anxiety and trying to interrupt this like kind of ramping of your body's emotional distress to the point of unsustainable proportions. And so depression is great at that. It comes in and it does a lot of things that look like self-care. You put on soft pants, you don't call people back, you don't check your email, you don't Mm -hmm. look at anything. Maybe you look at your phone a lot when you're thinking, I never get to look at my phone. Now I'm going to look at my phone all day. And I think to myself, well, gosh, look at these sorts of impulses rather than a disease. What if we just looked at them at your body's response system to an out of control situation? And we started asking less Mm -hmm. questions about how do we correctly diagnose your disease and more questions about what is happening in your life that you are currently taking responsibility for that isn't your responsibility. And so I think for us, like, that's what I want when I ask people to listen to their pain for a second. It's because I think if we listen to it before turning it into a symptom or a disease or an a form of individual failure, it will tell us something instructive about the ways in which our life are currently working and not working for us. And the ways in which actually the surrounding environment that we're probably arranged in is really, really harmful. And that we should actually pay attention to what our pain is asking us to do and to stop doing. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, 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 it does. And what's interesting is I think the, the refrain of like, you know, chemical imbalance or whatever, like all that type of stuff tends to be the goal of people kind of espousing that or whatever, which we can debate the accuracy or whatever, right? But the, the, the people saying that tend to be going for, hey, that's the alternative to, well, if you're depressed, just try harder or something, right? Mm. Like it tends to mm. be kind of a, we're trying to reduce stigma mm-hmm. in some sense. But what you're you're saying is, even if that's not true, even if, even if and again, there's, there's a million, you know, we're like incredibly complex human beings, 
even if that's not necessarily true, that doesn't then mean, oh, but it, that, that then means it has to be your fault, right? There's still larger systems. Mm-hmm. There's still reasons that make sense. There's still adaptive things happening. Um, and so, uh, you know, that just, it doesn't have to be, well, either it's an uncontrollable disease or it's just on you, right? Like that yeah. there's, there's more to that conversation, which, which I, I appreciate. That's a really helpful framing, Robert, because I think that mm. still either one, my disagreement with it is not that both of those things could be true. My disagreement is that it still leaves it with the individual always. So either one, it's still just you, right? Like you're just still the problem. Either your brain's broken or you're broken. Mm. And for me, I, I think it's more complicated than that. And so I would like people yeah. to slow down on this kind of binary approach to understanding their pain. Because for me, like, I think it ends up being more helpful if we can learn to kind of treat our pain respectfully and to empathize with it first. Mm. Oh, yeah. that's good. Rather, yeah. rather than immediately pathologizing it or internalizing it as a form of failure. Because I think yeah. when we do those things, that's when we become really susceptible to all the sort of destructive patterns that we're seeing regularly in psychotherapy. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I really like how you were saying about treating our pain respectfully. Um, I think that that's so important and probably not something that we're really good at doing um, <laughs> for a lot of reasons. Yeah. Anyways, I really appreciate yeah. even just that line in and of itself and just thinking about that rather than the ways that we um, instinctively numb or avoid or repress or, you know, yeah. cope with that pain in unhealthy ways rather than treat it respectfully like that. It's good. Yeah. So I, I loved your emphasis on uh, teenagers and adolescents in a lot of this book because that's an area I'm passionate about. That's the population that I, I serve primarily. Oh, yeah. um, and I especially loved the way that you shifted kind of a stance or posture uh, of like kids these days, right, judging behaviors and trends and stuff like that to a more kind of understanding and self-reflective stance. And again, I'll, I'll kind of highlight a, a particular phrase because I, th- I feel like you, you put so many phrases in here that I was like, let's just ask that, right? Um, <laughs> but you use this phrase, teenagers are our symptoms incarnate, right? Can yeah. you talk about that and like what you mean and, and maybe how that lens shifts how we're viewing, you know, kids these days for lack yeah, of a better, no. you know? No, I, I, this is, that's great. I mean, I think I put that in the book, so I tend to agree with everything you're saying here. Uh, but no, Robert. I, I also, I'm, I'm just always thrilled that maybe after after hours here, we can just talk about being a, a therapist to adolescents. It's just a yeah. deeply fascinating thing. But for sure, um, for for me, one of the things that was almost really helpful. I'm a I come out of a systems approach to to therapy, and so for me, family systems therapy has this way of understanding teenagers as less these sort of individualized automatons who just possess frustration and peril for their parents and more the, let's say this, the, the, the products or the incarnation of a problem within a network of relationships. So for instance, one of my favorite and one of the, I think the grandfathers and heroes of family therapy was this fellow Salvador Mnuchin, both of whom I'm, I'm sure you're, you're familiar with him. He was part of the uh, child guidance center in Philadelphia and he tr- treated a lot of adolescent uh, eating disorder uh, sufferers um, back a long time ago, I think in the 60s and 70s. And one of the things he sort of pioneered in this process was that if we can start providing family therapy for these adolescents, typically female in his experience, 
And if we can start actually doing couple therapy between this child's mother and father, I think we will see a reduction in the symptoms. And he was right. And so what he was finding is that actually sometimes the ways in which teenagers, however incoherently or angrily or on TikTok, exhibit the symptoms that we hate to see as adults, I think they're giving us really, really keen insight into what the problem is and or that there even is a problem at all. Mm. Because typically when teenagers come sit in my office, what they're experiencing is not this sort of like just, oh gosh, if you would just understand that you're just supposed to go to school and uh, make positive decisions and not like vape too much and uh, you know go to college and probably get a degree in finance and be okay then, um, yeah, like, why can't you just sort of figure this out? And so for me, I find that when we spend so much focused energy on treating the adolescent as an individual, rather than a product of an entire network of relationships that are frankly pushing a lot of responsibility upon this child, that it isn't theirs to bear. That's where the real Mm -hmm. magic is for me in therapy with teenagers. And so for me, what I'm saying is like when I'm describing them as like kind of symptoms incarnate, what I'm saying is that when all of us are, and this is a therapy term that I'll explain, but when all of us are parentified by a system that is destructively entitled to us, it creates such dysregulating experiences for all of us that it's difficult to survive. And so parentification, both of you will know this, that it is just this process of parenting demands that are not met by the adults in the room. So when adults advocate their responsibility as parents, it falls, the responsibility doesn't go any, like it doesn't disappear. It falls to the kids. So when parents are um, sort of disconnected Mm -hmm. through uh, substance abuse or uh, changing family dynamics or sickness, or it could be, you know, really straightforward problems, or it could be lots of collateral damage in the systems that we live in because mom or dad has to work out of the home uh, because of a system that is mandating that they work more than 40 hours a week or because they get divorced or separated or because one of them dies, then usually what happens is that one of the kids then gets accidentally co-opted to sort of fill in the gap in adult responsibility. And it's usually not something they're hired for directly. It's not like mom holds a meeting and says, hey, dad's gone, so I need somebody to be dad now. Uh, it's, it's passive. And so then what happens is that sometimes kids will then take this responsibility and they run with it. They, you know, get on student council and make all A's and have three jobs and help pay the light bill and wake people up for work and school. Mm. And they work really mm-hmm. hard. And then they get all of this great feedback from the system that tells them, gosh, you're really good at this. Mm-hmm. And then other students go the opposite direction and they like steal dad's car and drive it to the front of an old Charlie's or something. And then they get all this kind of negative feedback that's telling them, gosh, what is wrong with you? Can't you just see everything around you is bad? Like, why are you making it worse? And so neither one of these experiences with the kid are their fault. Both of them are bearing the weight of responsibility that it's unfairly fallen to them. And then they're bearing the suffering of it. And if we treat them individually as either, why are you so anxious about your grades? You know, you're making a perfect score or why did you crash your dad's car through the front of this restaurant? And why are you vaping all the time? What's wrong with you? And instead we view it mm-hmm. as, well, what is a, what system demands are being placed upon these kids that are unfair to them and are frankly developmentally inappropriate that they're bearing mm-hmm. responsibility for. And that's, yeah. so I'm saying I start that part of the process just as an adolescent therapist that's been trained in that kind of model and then start applying it. What is it like as Americans? 
when we're in a public health environment where all of us are individually charged with making public health decisions for everyone all of the time. Or when all of us individually have to decide, are we going to send loved ones or children to school with or without masks on? Or are we going to, or like even ballooning that out to um, healthcare in general in America? Mm-hmm. My wife cut her hand open on a glass recently. Uh, it's been a couple of years now. And I wish I could tell you all that my first thought when I saw her bleeding hand was, my word, I hope that she's okay and not how high is our deductible and is there an ER copay and which hospital is a network? These are my first thoughts. And so for me already, I'm bearing Mm -hmm. the parentified and individualized responsibility for a system that refuses to care for its citizens. And I then have to take responsibility as an individual person. And I think teenagers are doing this all of the time. And so I think they're actually instructive for understanding what it's like to be an American, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. I th- yeah. yeah there, there's, this, there's this tendency of like, again, kids or whatever, right? Like they just, once you grow up, you'll kind of understand like if teenagers are kind of saying, okay, this system is messed up or whatever. And I think you even see this playing out with, you know, online discourse. You see, you know, millennials don't own houses and uh, there's some chunk of people that are like, well, mm-hmm. they just, you know, they yeah. should have been saving more and they mm. should stop buying avocado toast. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, you should appreciate what you have, whatever, like this kind yeah. of weird, it's, you know, and, and millennials going, well, no, look at like the housing market, look at the way things have like minimum wage hasn't gone up. Like, what are you talking yeah. about? You know? Um, and so there are systemic things and the, the uh, uh, complaining, so to speak, right? Like the, the pain being expressed is, is accurate, but maybe when you're older, you think, oh, well, they're just complaining because they're kids or, you know, they don't mm-hmm. understand the world or whatever, right? Like that. Kind of, and obviously that's like one example, but yeah, it's just an interesting, an interesting dynamic. And I think the way you, you highlight it makes a lot of sense. Well, and I mean, I think you're you're nailing it because the best part about that is that boomers were called a lot of the same things that millennials were called, but in like the late 80s. So boomers were titled like the most entitled, selfish, self-centered, narcissistic generation in history. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was kind of, uh, I think, Bob Dole's whole platform when he ran for president, president against Bill Clinton was that look at all these like dumb, entitled, selfish boomers. And it's interesting that then that same thing then gets applied to millennials. And now that same thing is getting applied to Gen Z. Mm. And so for, for us, I think that is just, again, reflective of the system in which adults, rather than taking responsibility to care for and, frankly, love and provide structure and support to those coming after them, didn't get that themselves. And so instead, they then make younger generations responsible for making them feel good about what Mm. they didn't get from their own parents. And so I I treat that in families. I treat that in married couples and I try to survive that as an American. Yeah. Mm. There's all, if I can, I'll share one of uh, my favorite quotes of all time. It, the quote says, children, they have bad manners, contempt for authority. They show disrespect for elders and love chatter in place of exercise. They no longer rise when elders enter the room. They contradict their parents and tyrannize their teachers. Children are now tyrants. And that is a quote from Socrates in 470 yeah. BC. Oh, yeah. And I think that's amazing. Like literally mm-hmm. that's the same type of, you know, I, I just think that's so funny that this is always how it works. That's always, you know, where there's nothing unique generation to generation. That's just, I don't know, there's something about it. But I think yeah. I always find that hilarious. No, I, I had an assistant principal that, that had that up in her office. I always love that quote as well, Robert. And I think one of the things that it 
really gives insight to for paying attention and not just laughing at it is that the pain sticks around like it's the same pain and that pain is yeah. that like we're not mm-hmm. treating respectfully what it's like to live in a system that makes us responsible mm. for things that we have no business being responsible for yeah and if socrates yeah. was saying that then oh, i i you know several thousand years ago i think we might be onto something here yeah yeah, no, that's that's really good. I'm glad that Robert elevated that quote. And, you know, and it reminds me too of, you know, that pain when it's, you know, when, when we don't heal it, when we don't transform it, Richard Rohr teaches us that we project it and, um, and it just keeps going in that cycle, right? That any of that pain that's um, not transformed is transmitted. And so how we do that individually, but also collectively, I think is, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's tragic too. So, okay, I let me get back on our one of the the, the uh, questions that we did want to ask you too is around um, the fact that like if your argument then is that you know our collective and our individual pain, you know, most notably things like anxiety and depression that we've been talking about are trying to tell us something about our larger society or culture. Then you know, obviously, the question that we're hopefully trying to get to is you know what is that pain trying to tell us. Um, so can you give us a few examples of things that in your opinion, our pain is trying to point to or highlight? Yes. Yeah. I'm happy to do that. Um, I think in the book, I, I make a fairly uh, long-winded argument about the ways that um, kind of what we call like late capitalism, which again, using terms like this are really alienating for people. And I think for us, um, that's why I liken it to the way that David Foster Wallace pitched that speech to Kenyan college graduates uh, a long time ago. And it was uh, about like, you know, fish don't really realize they're living in water. It's not real. Mm-hmm. It's just the thing that they're in. And I think for us, the, the way that uh, our economic framework in America just kind of exists and that we exist within it without thinking about it is something that's worth sort of giving further attention to, primarily because of the ways that it infuses everything with what uh, historian Eugene McCarraher calls uh, a business ontology. And again, again, I'm, I'm explaining an alienating term with an even more alienating term. And so I, <laughs> I really love doing that. And I'm a great fit with teenagers, mm. obviously. But for me, one of the things, what he means is that like ontology, again, just that idea of like the way that we talk about being a person is that like when capitalism remains like an unchecked feature of our lives, it becomes internalized to the point that we use a, a, a business framework for making decisions about everything. So for mm-hmm. instance, it's the way that like someone, and I, I think I probably said this in the book, someone on Instagram has always done it better with than you and with more succulents. So, mm-hmm. so like this idea of like every time you get on the internet, first of all, someone has already turned themselves into a brand or t- into content. We do this with our kids all the time. We take their birthday party mm. or their like picking their effort at picking dandelions in the in left field during a t-ball game, and we take a picture of it, and then Zuckerberg turns it into content that makes money for him. And when yeah. I explain it yeah. in that way, rather than oh, let me just share this on Instagram, it feels different because that's what's happening to us. So we're taking this kind of again this unquestioned business ontology of why am I actually sharing a picture for strangers to turn into likes or dislikes or for strangers to ignore it or look at it while they're waiting for a dentist appointment and not keep it as something transcendent 
and weird yes. and beautiful yes. in and of itself, independent of the internet. Yep. Oh, or, so good. Or why, why is it that we're always competing with one another all the time for everything, mm. for no reason? Or why is it that every time I, I, I see my son like playing soccer, my first impulse is not to think, oh my, this is so fun. Like, I'm so happy that he's able to do this like kind of normal human thing after, again, trying to survive the end of the world for like the last three years. And my first impulse is not that, but is to say, I wish he would hustle more because like he's not going to be able to keep playing this at 12 or 13 because if he doesn't work hard, then he's not going to make any of these like semi-pro youth soccer teams. And then we're aware we're going to be then. Because mm -hmm. again, like there's this whole kind of pressure behind it of opportunities are scarce. This world will not take care of you. You are in competition with everyone around you. And so that trickles down. If we're not being careful, that trickles down to the way that we practice therapy. That trickles down yeah. to the way that we parent our kids. That trickles down to the yeah. way that we go to school or the way that we go to work or the way that we make decisions about whether or not to post pictures of our kids on Instagram. Yeah. Oh and so gosh. for me, there is this constant form at which I, I think I described this in the book as like an, a form of discontentment, that discontentment is capitalism's oxygen and carbon dioxide. It's the thing that keeps it alive and the thing that it gives off in its effort to stay alive. It needs mm. you to be discontent with your life mm. because you will always feel that discontentment with more products or more effort or more energy or more money or more burnout. And so yeah. It needs you to be radically yeah. not okay all the time to keep itself alive. And yeah. so for us, like if we're not constantly understanding in that kind of context, what we're dealing with every time we hashtag things or every time we scroll or every time we like send our kids to school, then we're not going to adequately deal with like what our pain is actively communicating to us about what yeah. it's like to try to live inside of a Black Friday sale all of the time. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. So, so that's, that's kind of the, the idea then that then trickles into, like I deal with like conversations about the internet and social media, and I talk a, a directly about the way that capitalism has changed over the course of the last 100 years. And it's not real academic, but it, it, it's trying to kind of track that development and change in the way that it changes the way that we conceive of ourselves. And then growing up as an evangelical Southern Baptist in the South, and then becoming a Baptist pastor myself. The ways in which Christianity, especially white American Christianity, has kind of been co-opted by this like kind of radicalization of self-interest as a moral good. And that in a society that prizes competition and scarcity, self-interest is the most important thing that you can do all of the time. Hmm. And so for us, like if we're taking that kind of Margaret Thatcherism from many years ago about how there is no society, there are only individuals and their families. And we balloon that out as an entire ethos for a country. I think America is the end result of that, that we don't live in a mm. society, that we live as individuals and families who are out for themselves because no one will yeah. take care of us. And so then mm. what does it mean to practice Christianity, which is a radical form of collectivism and self-sacrifice in a world that's only interested in self-interest? So yeah. for us, Christianity then, in my yeah. experience as, again, a, a white American Christian from an evangelical Baptist context, a God that's primarily interested in assuaging the doubt or fears that we have about whether or not self-interest is the best way to order one's life. So if we start thinking like, oh, like, well, what if life is bigger than what happens to me individually after I die? 
the Christianity I grew up with was like, Eric, that's a really dangerous question because people that ask that question, they go to hell. So stop asking it. Mm. So already that, that question is silenced, not because it's good or bad, but because it's not self-interested. Or the question mm. around like, oh, you need to come to church every Sunday. Why do I need to come to church every Or you need to tithe. Why do I need to tithe? Well, because that keeps the lights on at the church. And also God said so. When it's like, well, you know, who benefits from my tithe? Who doesn't benefit from my tithe? Why does, you know, the senior pastor take my tithe and take X percentage of it? And why does the, you know, children's minister get only X percentage of my tithe? And they have the same education level. And, and one of them's probably a woman and the other one's probably a man in my context. Mm -hmm. So why are their income levels so vastly different? That's interesting. And, and why is it that when these Christian institutions practice uh, mission work or social justice efforts, they're usually to people who have different skin tones than them and have vastly different economic outlooks than them. Why, why, why is that arrangement kind of baked in to the situation? And so, so I think for me, it's allowing our pain that we're experiencing to slow us down long enough to ask way more interesting questions about why we're so darn exhausted from trying to survive in the situation where competition and self-interested like efforts at staying alive are like morally good experiences and ones that are ordained by God. And so for me, like yeah. that's, that's kind of the, the way in which I'm trying to thread that needle of saying like, Oh yeah, I think your pain is there for a reason. I think there's some systemic impacts that are causing that pain beyond just you being a failure individually or biologically. And I think those things are exacerbated by a kind of hyper-capitalism that's been baked into almost all of your experiences on earth right now, including your religious experience with God. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's kind of the major argument that I'm, I'm trying to make. Man, yeah. that is just so good. Yeah. I really wish, I know that we are getting close to our time and I really, really wish that we had more time to unpack more of what is in this book because it is just so much of what you are saying I just, I just resonate with and, uh, and could go in a million directions again with a lot of these pieces. But one of the questions that we really do love to ask our guests, especially those who, you know, are doing lots of research in this particular area that they're passionate about or have written a book about, or, um, you know, wh whatever it is that they are doing with this work to serve others, um, is we're always really curious about what the individual's hope is for this work. So as this book, is launched out into the world. Um, I'm really curious to hear what is your hope for this this work, Eric? Yeah. No, I, I let one of my friends read an early draft and her response was, Eric, this book was such a bummer. Oh, jeez. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and, and then she's like, but like only the first half. And she's like, <laughs> like the second half, it, it had this kind of just uncon unconditional and unorthodox like buoyancy to it that I felt like you were really talking about things that were really hard and difficult, but I didn't feel the same sense of despair. And for me, mm -hmm. it's like there's anything that is true right now in a world just racked by constant informational onslaught about how the world is probably coming to an end. It's that like there's no amount of Instagram hashtag self-caring that one can do to survive the apocalypse hmm. except to tell yourself the truth and to let the truth 
not just set you free in terms of um, the way that maybe Jesus or, or Dr. King would describe it, but the truth to let yourself free from the responsibility of managing all of it because it isn't yours. It's mm. everything. Mm. And so for, for me, my hope is that not that people will read this book about kids and the internet and capitalism and Christianity and all of it mixed together and think, my word, I, I just feel like I'm drowning. My hope, and I think I, I use this terminology throughout, my hope is that you'll realize that like in that kind of moment that when you're not okay with it, that like when you release control over trying to be and trying to climb to the top of some sort of like multi-level marketing pyramid on behalf of God, that God is the thing waiting for you at the bottom of the slippery slope hmm. that like holds you up and helps you float on the surface of like a sea that's like totally out of control because mm. it's not your job to fix the world. It's your job to feel loved and safe in the midst of it, even if that seems impossible. Because when you do that, scientifically, you slow down your brain long enough to re-engage the parts of your brain that are really helpful for creative problem solving and collaborative solutions and all sorts of new beginnings and new possibilities. And even because I'm a Christian, resurrecting capabilities. And also indirectly, mm. it frees you from the weight of doing things that were never your job in the first place that will only drown you and cause you to sink. And so for me, my hope is that when people read this book, they will see that yes, the problems are very real and very complicated and very big. But the solutions that individuals are charged with is to remember that they're not alone and that they're loved by something that holds all of this together and doesn't make us responsible for it or make us responsible to make God feel any more like God or make God feel any more glory or God make, make God feel any more safe about God's place in the world. It's for us to trust that there is a thing that holds us up, even if when we stop trying harder to make everything work or trying harder to compete or trying harder to like help just get through the day that we won't drown that we can float. And, and I think that mm. that for me, like when people do that with me, even in a small way in my therapy office, it feels way different than it ever did when I was a pastor, because I'm able now to just tell people, yeah, it's not your job to brand on behalf of God or other people. It's just your job to be yourself. And when mm. you do yeah. that, I think something more interesting will happen for you. I don't know for sure, but I think maybe it's possible. And I think that's maybe the conclusion of my book is that like, I don't know what interesting thing will happen next, but I do know that competition, scarcity and bottomless effort is not going to get us there. Yeah. Mm. Gosh. Yeah. That's so good. Uh, we'll definitely uh, link to this book. And, and uh, I, I was telling you before we started that it's such a good read because it, it, it does go into everything as deeply as you're talking about here. But it also it it's funny in a lot of ways. Just your writing style is very humorous. And um, and, and I appreciated mm -hmm. kind of a lot of the, the snark woven throughout while also discussing, obviously, like really important, deep, complex things. Listener, if you want to connect with Eric, you can do that at ericminton.me on Twitter or Instagram at fake Eric Minton, which is 
pretty funny. Um, you can also mm-hmm. uh, pre-order uh, this book, and I think this will release pretty close to when the book releases, so you could also just buy it if it's after that. Uh, this book is It's Not You, It's Everything, What Our Pain Reveals About the Anxious Pursuit of the Good Life. You can get that wherever you buy books. We'll link all that in the show notes. You can connect with Holly at hollyoxhandler.com or on any social media at hollyoxhandler. You can connect with me at robert-vore.com or on any social media at robertvore. Eric, thank you so much for joining us today. Do you have any closing thoughts for our listeners? You know, if you don't want to buy this book, you don't have to. Uh, You can just borrow it from a friend. And, you know, honestly, Mm -hmm. like that might even, I mean, my publisher probably won't want me to say this, but I mean, honestly, man, like that's, that's probably what I'd like most is that if you have an experience with something that I've written and your impulse is to say like, oh my word, you should, you should check this out. Just here, have this, have my copy. That, that's the thing I want most for everybody is for us to be a little bit more open-handed with each other and less uh, scarce or precious about the things that we own. Um, So for me, uh, I want to say that first and foremost, feel free, or if you hate the book, just throw it away. But or please recycle it. Um, but, you know, at, at the end of the day, yeah, like that's that's what I want. It's not to sell things. It's just to let people know that, hey, you're not alone. Uh, please experience that. And so thank you all so much for giving me the chance to have me not feel alone in just quietly writing a book by myself for uh, two years during the end of the world. It was a gift to talk to you all about it today. Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH Podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMHPodcast at gmail.com. A final note. If you're in a dark place today, struggling with suicidal thoughts, you are not alone. Professional help is available 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255.